Begin driving. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Welcome to Noam on the Move. A podcast looking at how transportation evolved throughout the years and how disruptive technologies will continue to transform it. Here's your host, Noam Metal. You have reached your destination. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Noam on the Move. I'm excited today to have Bobby Lewis with us. Bobby Lewis is a registered professional engineer, most recently worked as the chief operating officer for North Carolina DOT, and, and really oversaw all the operation and strategy for the department, driving some of the key initiatives in the state. And uh, I can tell you also one of the champions for data and, and new ways to use data within the, the agency as well. And recently, actually, he crossed uh, over the, the road to the private sector and joined uh, HNTB as a vice president of advisory services, where he's providing strategic advice on, on projects and programs. So, Bobby, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Glad to be here. Th- thank you for having me. Bobby, it's exciting for me that I have the opportunity to talk to someone that's been kind of a long time in a DOT environment, really working on, on all aspects of infrastructure to technology and seeing from the inside how a lot of these things are developed. I'm curious, before we dive in, though, transportation is often something we talk about in policy, government, but but at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to our personal day-to-day stories. And so what's your connection you know, from a personal level to, to the mobility and transportation space? How did you get into this? So for me, it's uh, just a little quick further background on me. I kind of grew up as sort of an army brat, if you will. My dad was a career military person, but he came off uh, a farm and such, big family, very close-knit family. And when he finally done several tours overseas and uh, out of North Carolina, he came back to Fort Bragg and done his last uh, seven or so years. Well, at that particular time, I had an uncle, is Jimmy Lewis. He was uh, with the department uh, for 52 years, basically. But as my dad was a little bit of a war junkie, he was always overseas, even though we were at Fort Bragg. He would come by, and my uncle would come by and just visit, check on the family. But then he would carry me out to projects. One, The first one was I-95 when he was helping with some reconstruction on that, not the original construction, but some reconstruction on it. And it was just outside the Fayetteville area, of course. And then right then, and I'm probably only maybe 11 or 12 years old, but always uh, just enjoyed that piece of it, enjoyed the building of it. I, I come from a family that's very much blue collar, again, comes from the farm. And so I was like the first one that actually was going to go to a four-year institution or college. So, And my uncle just helped feed that piece for me. He would tell me, uh, uh, you know, you could do this, go into civil engineering. And I'm not one that just does anything anybody tells me, but I like that aspect of it. Uh, he'd carry me around where I was able to meet people that he worked with, the contractors that he worked with as well. And it, it just seemed like salt-of-the-earth type of people, and I'm very people-oriented. So before you know it, uh, I had a one-track mind. I decided I was going to go into civil engineering. Knew it when I was basically in the seventh or eighth grade. Only applied to one college, applied to their school of engineering. That became history. And then I picked up where he left off and went into 
NCDOT and worked for several summers, but then came, became permanent, worked myself through the ranks, as you already talked about, and became chief operating officer. But in short, I would have never thought I'd be where I ended up at. Very thankful for the opportunities that North Carolina gave me uh, as a public servant. When we were talking earlier, one of the things I think you were mentioning that created maybe inadvertently almost a, a tenure of the Lewis legacy, right, from your uncle onwards to you of, of what, over 50 years at North Carolina DOT? Yes, that's correct. Well, and if you look at us at his time and my time, is probably over 75 years. Oh, my goodness. So let me ask you, that leads me to my, my next question. 75 years is a long time. Let's go go with your your uncle. What do you think he would think of you know looking back seventy years seventy five years back when he started, and then fast forward to today, you know well, how would he think about some of the changes in the transportation? Are those things you think he could have imagined, or would it just completely blow his mind? I think it's a little bit of both. Him being very purpose driven, he could see where transportation was something that would support the future and uh, especially he was more of a highway person of course in the type of work he did but I think he could see that but then on the flip side when as we probably progress here and start talking about things like autonomous vehicles I don't even think even say you go back several years ago that you could even imagine freight would dominate so much on the highway network where it used to be more of the rail side so I, I think where we've evolved and what technology is we get into that later, I think that would certainly still surprises them each day. Yeah. And I think let's talk about that infrastructure too, because it was built a long time ago. You know, let's take your, your hometown, right? Uh, your home state of North Carolina, population growth and congestion has started to pile up. The freeway system and the road systems that we built are becoming more and more congested every year. Is there a tipping point where we say, okay, we're, we're at that point where the system just can't match the demand of, of vehicles on our road? And when does that happen? And what, what happens after that? So I think there could be certain tipping points in certain populated areas. It's funny that you mentioned population. I was just looking at some stats over the last several months and such. And believe it or not, by 2040, as we talk about when we reach a tipping point, but by 2040, basically, there's going to be 50% of the United States population will be in eight states. And of course, you're still going to have the Californias and the New Yorks and such that are going to dominate a yeah. lot of the population. But surprisingly, the Southeast, there's four states in Texas, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina that uh, see over a 20 million population increase over that time period. And the reason why I mentioned that, because that always has something that ties into VMT, uh, vehicles miles traveled. Uh, right now, I don't know why it works out this way, but for every person that moves in, it seems like VMT increases by threefolds. Now, I think that trend as uh, habits and behavior uh, continues to evolve as technology continues to improve, but even if it's just two to one. For every one person that comes in, uh, VMT increases by two. I think, uh, yes, there will be tipping points, especially in those particular states. But I think in those particular states, especially the four I mentioned in the southeast, you'll still have some new capacity, meaning uh, new location or greenfield type projects. But you'll qu we're quickly in all of uh, the United States trying to build what we can 
inside the operational right away, meaning we'll just widen on existing, but sooner or later that'll get there where you're starting to try to do other trends where whether it's like congestion price and things like that to make that make the system where it's not reliant on the peak load, but more so where the system, the, that travel network can be spread out through the course of a day and not just four or so hours in a particular day. But I think all of that, but then layer that with technology, if you're able to have the autonomous and connected vehicles and alike, that'll make it where you can move more vehicles on your system in a particular time frame. Yeah, that, that's the, the last point I want to kind of pick on and dive deeper. So connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles, we, we hear a lot of conversations about that. And I think, uh, in fact, for many years, people have been saying they're, they're coming, we're going to see them in prolif- proliferating. I guess the, the real question is, how do you think we're going to be utilizing the data that's coming from the vehicles? And is is autonomous vehicles alone the solution to all of our congestions and congestion and traffic safety concerns? Or is there more to it in terms of how, for example, state agencies think about how they manage the transportation network? Because you could make an argument that even if you have autonomous vehicles and they just replace private vehicles, the same level of of demand on our network will remain. And so how how do we think about the models that we need with the combination of new technologies that are coming about? So that's interesting. So the question becomes, um, you know, what is it that helps makes makes our system more mobile and uh, safer all at the same time? Uh, I don't think there's no one particular silver bullet. I think it's going to be a combination uh, of using technology to support that. So like, for example, uh, autonomous vehicles are certainly uh, make it where you're taking out human decision making that could lead to more accidents. That can certainly, that'll certainly help for sure. But connected vehicles uh, and such, what does that do, you know, as far as moving more freight and such, not just connected with the passenger vehicle, but how does that work when you talk about connected and platooning? So that means you're making it more mobile and moving more volume through the system. However, to your point about data and what you can do with it, you know, is not just the autonomous and connected, but uh, all the telematics of data that you're keeping with it. Uh, One, you could take that and make sure that cars are talking to each other and complementing the roadway system where it becomes smarter, of course. But I mean, I even think of things because let me take a quick pause. If you go look and we're living in this crazy pandemic right now and hope we never have to see something like this again in my lifetime or my kids' lifetimes, but as many deaths as we've had in the United States, it, it still pales in comparison to the accidents we have on our highway network each day. Uh, every day, we easily have over 100 uh, deaths on our highway system uh, nationwide. But the reason why I may want to mention that You'd be amazed the exhaustive effort that goes into the just doing accident studies and or the highway patrolmen's uh, going through and seeing what actually happened in this accident. Think of what telematics and just other you know sensitivity sensors that you would have on your car that's able to say how many times that car rolled over, uh, why did it roll over, was it the GM metrics of the roadway or what? But so there's things just on accident recon, but then also how do you be uh, preventive uh, in realizing it, whether it's comparing LIDAR 
to uh, what what's that's going in with your sensors on your vehicles. But also, I even see uh, have to mention this too, but how it also complement the workforce where you're able to do design and do things a lot faster as well to be able to get in there. But I, I do think you're right that technology uh, and data will be something that helps our system become more mobile and safer at the same time. I want to, you know, before I, I want to talk about the workforce and, and talk about that because it's an interesting paradigm shift. But I think what you mentioned about traffic safety, I have to to add on that. Very recently, we just saw reports for the first six months of this year, which obviously, as we know, include the impact of COVID-19. And we're seeing a very alarming spike in traffic fatalities across the country. This is despite a pretty significant congestion reduction over the same period. And so what we're seeing actually is our roads becoming more dangerous, really alarming in that. And I think it just even more raises that desperate need that we have. I mean, I think we we talk about COVID and the, and the awful numbers from there. We're, we're approaching 200,000 people that have died in the U.S. When we look at the numbers for fatalities, we're looking at almost 40,000 a year over the last 20 years. These numbers are astonishing. And I think it's we, we sometimes forget the magnitude of, of the impact this has had uh, uh, across the U.S. Yes, that's correct. Agree 100 percent. And to your point on it, uh, it's interesting. If you go look at safety statistics in certain states, it will not surprisingly, the more congested that particular state is, the less severe accidents they have. Because obviously, if they're moving slower through traffic, it, they may have uh, accidents, but they would not be of the serious nature uh by and large. So what happens is uh, right now, my opinion is, is it's more behavior. So it's related to uh, speed or dis- distracted driving, you know, not wearing their seatbelt and such because they're comfortable and they think that they can still do 60 and 70 on that highway facility and get where they're going because traffic's not as bad. So it does increase your serious injuries, in my opinion. So I want to jump to the workforce for a second. You mentioned all these new innovations and how telematics, connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles can have an impact on transforming our transportation network. But but let's face the reality, right? A lot of these deployments have to happen in public transportation agencies that don't have the matching or the similar skills that you would typically need for this type of new technologies. They're more geared towards construction, design, capital-based projects, how does the public transportation sector, how do the government agencies start adjusting, can they, to, to be managing projects that are more data-oriented? And what's, what role do they uh, have or what responsibility? So that's interesting. So there's a, a couple pieces there in the workforce piece. So like you said, the culture, whether it's the governments, small and large, whether it's a state or a municipality or a transit authority, all sizes, but when you go look at them, maybe one has more uh, people than the other, but structurally, they're all basically the same, right? I say that, you know, far as how we embrace it going forward, it's going to evolve. I mean, it's not something that you can take a step by step, but I compare it to the cell phone. I mean, I was probably 28 years old, and I'm 47 now. When I was 28, I had a flip phone or uh, or a bag phone. Then it went to a flip phone. But think of how quick it went to that smart 
phone where you're able to surf the internet and things like that. It just seems like it went in no time. And I think what you'll have is as you bring in more youth. So I think the workforce, you'll have to nurture the old, but embrace the youth as they're coming right straight out of college. And it's, uh, you know, this is language that they speak. They will embrace it. And so we're going to be very reliant on our youth. Us as, uh, say myself, as an old person in the room, I just have to be able to <laughs> embrace uh, and trust the youth to kind of carry this torch forward, in my opinion. Let me poke a little bit more on that. So if you look at Silicon Valley, where a lot of innovation comes from, uh, you take Mark Zuckerberg, you take other known entrepreneurs, a lot of them are, are, are young, right? And in government, a lot of times kind of time and hierarchy plays a key role. So how are we going to enable that youth to step up and when we start working on things like data science or AI and how we automate systems and technologies that are maybe more familiar or intuitive from their young ages, how do they play a role within a system that isn't necessarily constructed to give them that that power? So interesting enough, just from going to many conferences over the last five or so years, workforce outside of technology has been an issue anyway, uh, because not as many are, I guess, attracted to transportation or transportation is growing at such a rate, you have competition there. So a little less interested in the engineering world, world a little more interested in uh, the technology world. So I think the inventory of what comes out of school is there from the technology side. But to your question specifically, I think as I looked over the last five years, every DOT, most uh, government structures, they have this gap where they have a lot of folks, employees that have 20 plus years, and that may represent 30% of their staff. And then they'll, uh, between 20 and 10, that may represent, you know, another uh, 40 or so percent. But as you can see, and you do the math, there's still a, a plenty full of youth that has 10 years and less that I don't think they'll have any choice but embrace that and realize that they'll have to break down those, uh, I, I hate to use the word silos, so I'll call them the cylinders of excellence. They'll have to break those uh, <laughs> uh, down and look at workforce just because uh, somebody uh, worked, say, in construction for a bit doesn't mean that they can't work somewhere else as long as they have the people and management skills can be able to make decisions. I think that's where every organization is going to have to move towards is just sort of breaking down those organizational silos and make sure that, uh, at least for myself, I would always try, especially with new folks coming in, to make sure they're involved in any technology effort, any data governance effort we have, just to break the cycle of where we're continually doing the same thing. So I think I, I don't think I'm unique to any other leader. I think many other leaders across the state, across the nation, I mean, has been doing the same thing. Let's talk money. I, I think you touched upon another topics we just discussed, but a lot of these activities, both workforce, but honestly, the infrastructure at large are expensive. And as we've gone about with these deployments of new technologies, but mainly road work and infrastructure development, we've kind of tallied the bill and it's gotten higher and higher to a place where it's strenuous on many agencies. And on top of that, the model that we have used in the nation to fund that has mainly been tax 
base, so fuel tax revenues. I'm curious to get your perspective on, is that uh, sustainable, that model? And also, should we be changing to other models? So to your question, is it sustainable? Absolutely not. I think as uh, I just pause real quick again and just go back in history, you know, the first monumental achievement the nation had far as transportation goes is obviously the railroad network and it was there to move people in freight of course and then you had the interstate uh, system come about and then also around that same time period uh, the commercial airports were doing it the reason why i mentioned those three uh because they obviously have a entire nation type of impact regional transit and such is very important but it's isolated to certain urban centers you know it's not something that you just find in rural areas uh, outside the bus networks but i say all that and lump them all together because uh, to your point at the federal level they're very reliant on the motor fuels tax at the state levels they're very reliant on the motor fuels tax and yes every state has uh, they'll look at different sources but most states only have anywhere from three to four sources of revenue where motor fuels taxes is the biggest. And the challenge with that is your portfolio is not big enough. So you're very reliant on something that could be uh, at best small growth or uh, even worse, flat to decline. And, and with more fuel efficient vehicles and such, as you know, and especially the electrification of our system, you know, you cannot rely on that type of user fee. Now, I, I say user fee because... Uh, You know, if you want to use the system, you got to go fill up uh, your tank with gas or diesel, whichever you have. But I I still think as far as a guiding principle of the people that came before us, they wanted to tie it to use. And I think going forward, they'll still uh, tie it to use. You know, and I'm not going to say one particular thing's a a silver bullet here either, but I think you're going to have to have a big menu. And it could be certainly, uh, you know, as tolling continues to evolve, you know, that would be sort of a pay-to-use system, whether it's a mileage payment. People have heard of vehicles miles traveled in VMT or road user charge, all over mileage-based user fee. All of them kind of say the same thing. You, it's a mileage payment, if you will. And then there's certainly sales tax, and, and you can go on and go on and on. But then that's just ways of realizing and assuming that similar volumes use the same system but then when i say like sales tax you have uh, like most states charge a sales tax if you go buy a vehicle but what's going to happen as this subscription vehicles evolve or the vehicle sharing because then it's not that continual um, uh, payment into that system so we'll have to figure out how we can still capture that pay-to-use policy that was started in the early 1900s, but that's probably the biggest challenge, uh, and it's not just construction, because so often, uh, especially at the federal level, it's just for new things, uh, especially on the highway side, but if you think about it, uh, a lot of our system is uh, getting to that 50, uh, 60 year time frame, and of course, they've been resurfaced or reconstructed at times, but that maintenance burden is going to be expensive as well. So it, it's something that certainly it has kept me up at night for uh, many of years, but we, we do have to figure out how to modern, how we collect revenue at the transportation side of it. 
I mean, on that note, that will, that will kind of determine if we'll be solvent with our road network, right? And how we move forward. So a good note kind of for a final thought there, a quick thought, your kids, will they be driving their vehicles, you think? Or will they be already in a, some mode of autonomous? So I think my son now is 17. He'll be 18 in December. Now, he helps contribute to the motor fuels tax revenue because he likes the loud <laughs> pickup trucks. Uh, and the higher he can get it and the more gas he can burn, the better. And it hurts my pocket. My daughter, I could easily see she's she'll be 13 next week. And I can already see her looking at Teslas and things like that. This is what I would like to have, Dad. And, you know, the first thing I, I think of, yes, that would probably be a safer vehicle for my uh, my pretty princess. However, at the same time, I, being a public servant in a DOT agency, I quickly go back to, well, uh, uh, you know, revenues and how you pay for it is going to quickly change if a 13-year-old is already looking at that any rate, but no, you're right, which ends up going to things like uh, DMV fees. Every state has a DMV and most of their license and registration ends up going to their transportation revenue, whether it's local or state. So you're going to see a big impact from that standpoint as because even now it's slow, but there's still a lot of kids today that wait till they're 18, 19 to get their driver's license. Just think about what happens is they can just hop in a car that can drive itself for them. Yeah. And I mean, just as very uh, on time, time, uh, timely fashion, as you're talking about what it'll look like for our kids. My two-year-old comes running behind me. I don't know if you could see that, but, uh, and, you know, so thinking about him, he's two-year-olds or two-year-old already taking pictures on my smartphone. I don't think I had a phone until I was in like eighth grade. So it'll be very interesting when our, my kids grow at least. And they're the digital revolution, if you will, is not a new thing for them. It's what they're born into. I think that will also play a key part in how they experience their mobility services as a digital, you know, from start to finish a digital experience. It won't be, you know, about about the the drive itself, but what type of experience on the digital front of it, the infotainment, the all, all those components, which today is something that for us, you know, you're you're more focused on the drive. Uh, I think a lot of that will change as well. And I know that the OEMs are very focused on that and the experience that you're having within the vehicle. Absolutely. And not to get off subject here or anything, but it's uh, if I jump to the school system, for instance, as we're going through this pandemic, there's going to be certain lessons that are learned. And yes, as parents, you, you want your kids to get those social opportunities and such. But I can tell you, uh, being from a rural area in North Carolina, my kids are still getting their education. And I mentioned that because the school system is something when you go back and look, it's always been that uh, we have to have that house, if you will, that building that with uh, classroom settings. That has not changed. It's almost been like the railroad model where it still looks the same. But I think the pandemic is forcing that, which to get back on point here, I think the youth that we have going forward, going to be just looking at things a whole lot different than uh, you or I had even thought about, certainly myself. Yeah. Well, on that optimistic note, I, I want to thank you, Bobby, for joining me today. Great conversation and appreciate you taking the time to join us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Noam.